Hi, you're listening to the Stefan Levera podcast, a show about Bitcoin and Austrian economics. Today for episode 210, Sergey Kotliar, CEO of BitRefill, rejoins me on the show. We're chatting about how to watch Bitcoin's mempool, what tools we should use, the implications of a block-based market, and we also talk about lightning adoption and privacy, as well as Bitcoiners on COVID. This show brought to you by Swan Bitcoin. If you are in the US or you have friends in the US, absolutely get them on to Swan. The process is so simple and no coiner could do it, and they are Bitcoin only. So step one, auto fund USD from your bank account. Two, auto stack your Bitcoin. And three, withdraw that Bitcoin to your cold storage. Swan does not charge withdrawal fees. They want you to follow Bitcoin best practices and they crush Coinbase's fees for recurring buys by up to 80% and Cash App's fees by up to 57%. So set and forget. Enjoy your life. Just swan and chill. Go to swanbitcoin.com slash to start auto stacking with swan today. Use that ref link to get $10 of Bitcoin dropped into your account when you start stacking with swan. This show also brought to you by Knox, a Bitcoin custodian dedicated to ensuring their insurance protection covers the full value of their customers' assets. So if you're a Bitcoin company, investment fund, trust, or family office, you might be looking for this kind of solution. So for example, suppose a fiduciary wants to hold $250 million of Bitcoin with Knox. Knox will seek to obtain $250 million of insurance dedicated exclusively to that account and adjustable to volatility. No fractional coverage or narrow scope. Insurance for what it's worth, a tool to transfer risk. Knox is backed by investors such as Fidelity Investments Canada, Initialized Capital, and Inovia. The website is knoxcustody.com. Next is the Cypher Wheel, produced by CypherSafe. So this is a metal seed backup product for your Bitcoin 12 or 24 seed words. So when you create a Bitcoin wallet, such as a hardware wallet, you've got to write down that 12 or 24 word seed. Now, don't just keep that on a piece of paper. Keep that on a metal backup that's fireproof, waterproof, rustproof, petproof, and tamper evident. The cipher wheel is in a wheel shape, and you get tiles, and you slide them in, four letters per word, and you can also get a padlock tamper evident seal so you know if it's been opened. Don't leave it to chance. Just make sure that your loved ones have access to your bitcoins if an accident occurs. You can go and order yours at cyphersafe.io and use the code LAVERA to get 10% off. This show also brought to you by Unchained Capital, Bitcoin native financial services. Unchained are building their products on the foundation of multi-signature. So if you're thinking about your Bitcoin security and you want to upgrade from single signature to multi-signature or even just go straight zero to multi-signature, Unchained can help you out. They're offering a Vault concierge onboarding package so you can get a guided setup call and have hardware wallet devices mailed out to you. And the prices range from $1,500 downwards, depending on if you've already got the hardware wallets, and use the code LAVERA for a discount there. Unchained also offer Bitcoin-backed loans as well, so if you need liquidity, this is an option for you. And they've also got a range of incredible content on their website, so make sure you go and check them out. That website is unchained-capital.com. Here's the interview. Sergey, welcome back to the show. Happy to be back. So, Sergey, I know you've got a lot of uh, interesting... uh, things that you're chatting about often and uh i know one that you love to chat about is the mempool you're a big mempool watcher aren't you uh i like to think so uh i like to think so uh but i'm not alone anymore uh it's, it's a good group uh, uh partaking in this lovely hobby so what are some of the things that you would keep an eye on mempool wise well i mean uh like for me personally we we consolidate our coins on the weekends uh, at at Bitrefill and 
and so it's uh, it's important to get a get a low uh, low cost. I think that's the like the original motivation for it. Um, but uh, so yeah, I, uh, you know, look for uh, uh, what the fees are, uh, who's bidding, how much, uh, and so on. But you kind of also see like uh, a lot of interesting things, like lots of large chunks of transactions being dumped, and sometimes you can click into them and see what's uh, what's going on there, and uh, you kind of learn. Like I think uh, for me, one of my motivators has always been to to understand. Uh, this field uh, that we're in, uh, and uh, uh, and there is a lot of, uh, as you know, a lot of different kinds of bullshit and disinformation. But something that's not bullshit is is what you see on the mempool, I guess. And so that's, uh, uh, I think, another uh, reason why why I like looking at it. Do you have any preferred mempool watching tools, or are you just more like a command line wizard style? Uh, no, actually, I use tools. Uh, I use uh, well uh, Joho's uh, colorful chart. I think many people know, and uh, more recently, been using mempool.space a bit. Uh, I also have this one uh, called the fee calculator at by Bitcoin Worldwide uh, .com, which shows uh, the top two blocks, uh, like transaction by transaction, and you can kind of see uh, the big ones there. Uh, I think that's my my secret weapon here, uh, and then uh, fork <laughs> fork.lol uh, as well. Uh, obviously, not specifically for the mempool, but generally for. I have like a, a couple of tools. And so then, if you found something that you want to try to dig into further, how do you? What's your process then? Usually, I check them on oxt.me, and they, they get basic clustering and find out which entities are what. Yeah, so I guess just for listeners who aren't familiar with that, can you just tell us a little bit about what that clustering is and what kind of information you are able to glean from it? So xt.me is, a, is a, a, I guess, a block explorer type service that does a, a, a relatively rudimentary chain analysis algorithm where it basically checks which transactions appear to be coming from the same entity there is some like user generated info about uh, who people think uh, which entity is uh, and um, it's free and open for everybody uh, you need to have an account but you can just sign up for an account uh, and it's uh, it's pretty good and you can you know not, not always but uh, oftentimes you can like you click around a little bit and like ah oh, that's binance or like ah oh, that's coinbase so with that, you can then start to understand, okay, a whole bunch of transactions just hit the mempool. I'll go and search that transaction ID, for example, and then see, oh, okay, this is coming from the Binance cluster, something like that, right? Yeah. I mean, in practice, the interesting thing is just to overbid them by, by, uh, by a fraction of uh, 0.01 uh, sats per byte. That's the real sport. But, uh, you know, if you're curious uh, about uh, who suddenly dumped uh, a couple of megabytes of high-paying transactions of the mempool, you can get an impression. I mean, that's how, if you remember, I was some time back, I was yelling about uh, BitMEX and, and Coinbase, and most of it came from just things like that and just seeing them you know, over and over again. Right. And so I think you were commenting then, and this is probably still the case, is that many of Bitcoin's transactions are actually inter-exchange, right? Was that, that was what you right. were saying, right? Yes. And we did the math on that uh, lately, and I think it landed at 55%, if I remember correctly. 
Uh, or not into exchange coming from an exchange, but you can kind of assume that if, you know, if it's 55% from, then it's probably 55% to, but I can't really prove that. I see. Yeah. So I guess, how would you distinguish then? You might look it up on OXT to see if it's going from one exchange to another, or as you were saying, from exchange, meaning probably out to somebody's own wallet if they're doing a withdrawal, right? Right. Well, I mean, uh, you can, uh, for for that metric, we just uh, looked at uh, what percent, uh, percentage used batching. Uh, and uh, because if you use batching, then you're some type of entity, right? You're not a regular person with a wallet. Um, and so uh, based on that, you can uh, you can estimate a lower bound, uh, which was 55%. And you probably add a little bit to that. Uh, and so 55 is a lower bound. I see. So this is batched on the exchange side. And I guess the heuristic or kind of heuristic you're, you're applying there is that most individuals, although they can technically do a batched transaction using certain wallets that have that feature, most people are not. And so I guess that's also another way to sort of understand a little bit about what's going on on the chain and who is using it, right? Exactly. And so you would also see other Bitcoin businesses doing their own consolidations or their own periodic, like, for example, I think BitMEX is known for doing a, a daily transaction. And at that time, it just a whole bunch of transactions hit the chain, right? Right. I guess, are there any other interesting patterns that people could see is it i mean the one that most people kind of colloquially understand is that most of the transactions during the week they're kind of a bit higher and then during usually on the weekend it's a bit lower right that that's essentially your experience are there any other patterns that you see around that kind of thing yeah i guess uh, those are the main things i mean it's pretty clear that we're seeing tendencies towards something that might be called a, called the fee market or or maybe even that there's two different fee markets, like one for uh, during uh, office hours and weekdays and, and one for, for the weekends, um, uh, which is interesting. But I still, like, I, I think I remain one of the, uh, of the uh, let's say, skeptics in, on the fee market uh, concept. Um, not that I don't want it to happen or think that it would be good, but just that, I think that for a market to evolve, it's uh, it's uh, markets need to have human participants. <laughs> it needs to have a majority of human participants uh, that uh, uh, you know uh, decide. Hey, do I do I want my transaction? How how badly do I want it? And so on. Uh, whereas if the vast majority of all transactions are done programmatically and not actively uh, monitored by a human, um, then sometimes. Uh, these things can be uh, not exactly market related, right? So, so you have things like, I guess when BitMEX does their dump uh, at uh, 9 a.m. Eastern time, uh, that kind of pushes the averages for the, for, uh, for the whole network uh, significantly higher for the rest of uh, the rest of the workday uh, U.S. Eastern time. Um, but there's also things like, you know, if you're certain exchanges just always want to be in the next block and uh, how they will deal with it when that's no longer possible, uh, I don't know. Uh, so it becomes uh, this, uh, this, uh, this, I guess, algorithmic bidding war, uh, I guess, like we saw in the past on, on Amazon, where you would have products selling for one penny uh, because they were configured to always outbid their, their competitor and the competitor also uh, outbids their competitor and so on, and then it becomes a race to the bottom. 
and we definitely have these types of things going on in the uh, in the in the film market uh, right now which is why i'm like a little bit uh, cautious to declare uh, that we now have a film market and everything is good uh, and or things like some people count uh, how much fees were spent in a day and see that as an indication of a viable film market yeah, I see. And so part of what you're talking about there also comes to fee estimation. And so Bitcoin wallets have to try and estimate what sort of fee do I want to put through, whether it's a low, medium or high priority, and then that will determine how many sats per byte. So right. I'm wondering... And that's obviously super, super tricky to do because you can't. it's hard to predict the future, right? It's like uh, driving a car uh, while only looking in the rear mirror. Like, uh, you know, it's it's, it's hard. <laughs> they they do the best they can, but uh, but it's a uh, it's a tricky uh, tricky area. Uh, and again, it's weird that it's not. Uh, you know, you maybe it would be more efficient if people did a blind uh, a blind bid, uh, just like I might be willing to pay this much. But now you see all the transactions, and you can just outbid them by uh, by uh, by a fraction of a set. So jumping into that a little bit further, as an example, you might be looking to do a transaction and then you might look up on mempool.space or one of these uh, sites and think, oh, okay, I don't care that much about next block, but maybe I'll target for, say, the third or the fourth block sort of thing. And then you that might come back with, oh, okay, you need to put it at you know 10 sats per byte or something like that to get it in or whatever. Uh, and then you might put that in, but then as you put that in, it might get away from you because a lot of other people might put their transaction in as well, right? For example, and so, for example, uh, again, if we talk about the BitMEX dump, uh, if you don't know uh, that uh, it's going to happen at 9 a.m. Eastern time every day, uh, then you might think that you're the highest bidder uh, and then poof, and then suddenly you're outbid and you're stuck for the rest of the day. And there's these things that people don't don't know about enough. And, And it's hard for an algorithm to know that. Uh, I guess at some point, if the, the algos had some level of AI, they would learn that you know every day at this time, the, usually the, this happens. Yeah, but but it's I mean it is hard because they're just programs. And some have tried to you know criticize Bitmax and say, oh, you guys should you know whatever spread it out or do other things. But would that also change in terms of you know maybe it's a good thing that it's more predictable for people? <laughs> I guess. Uh, uh, I don't think it is in, in the sense of how, how given that the fee estimation algorithms only uh, drive by looking in the rear mirror, uh, it actually makes it less predictable, um, paradoxically. Um, but I mean, uh, look, I don't want to talk too much about them. I know that they're, they have smart and good people and that they are working at, uh, uh, at fixing this particular issue. Um, uh, and we've we've bugged them enough. I think I think they know uh, and are aware uh, <laughs> of, of, uh, yeah. of their impact. And it's not just them. I mean, there's a lot of different companies and entities that that periodically do this. And it's it's curious to see. I mean, it's in a lot of ways, it's like a, I guess a, a bragging thing. If you like, uh, you know, spend a, a couple of bitcoins uh, on transaction fees when you didn't really need to. That's like it's a power. It's a power move. It says something about the, about, about the company that you can afford uh, to do this. Yeah. You know, hey, hey, you know, it's just a bitcoin. I mean, come on, right? Um, <laughs> and you see those uh, every once in a while. 
and, and, and that's curious too. Yeah, and then the other thing is it's a whole dynamic around uh, there might be a time when, let's say, a large custodian wants to do their consolidation. And so they might wait for a good time and then put through a big consolidation at a very low sats per byte because obviously that's uh, better to do, it, to do it at that time. Right. Yeah, and that's what we do and uh, many others. But, but there's also quite a few that consolidate at high fees, uh, and, uh, which ends up costing them a couple of bitcoins each time. Oh, well, that's the power move. <laughs> it is. It is. You have to respect it. One other thing um, with exchanges. So do you see it like exchanges will start to offer, say, low priority withdrawals? I know, for example, Bitaroo, an Australian exchange, they offer that as a feature where you can actually say, I want a low, low fee, low priority withdrawal. So I want to pay less and get it for cheaper. Uh, do you see that as a coming practice or what's your view on that? Yeah, I think so. And I mean, uh, and that's what would need to happen for fee market to be, uh, to, to, to have appeared is when all transactions are a little bit like that. Uh, uh, in the end, there is someone deciding, uh, some person deciding for each individual uh, payment, uh, how much they would be willing to pay for it. So, uh, so uh, I mean, it's heading there, but, but it's, uh, as everything in this space is heading much slower than, than what I would have liked. Yeah. I also want to chat about the, there's a funny sort of seesaw effect as well. So I mentioned this uh, on my recent uh, chat with Bresby from Lightning Labs as well. And he and we were just chatting a little bit about how there's this funny dynamic in the block space market where it's kind of like for an initial period of time, companies won't want to, they might not care that much about doing SegWit and batching and using Lightning and all these efficiency things because it just doesn't cost them enough and they don't care enough. But then it kind of it gets to a point where the fees are that high and now they get pushed into using some of these you know smart engineering tricks and engineering uh, methods to try and basically get more for less but then maybe it kind of then the seesaw goes back the other way and then now it's like the fees come really low again do you see that dynamic playing out over the next few years absolutely i mean uh, and it it doesn't even need to be like that i mean it's very simply you have i mean when you run a company, you shouldn't optimize something that's not a problem. Yeah. And so when it becomes a problem, you optimize it. And so, uh, uh, I mean, this is why uh, I've had long discussions with core devs about this as well, that like, uh, you know, the theory of the never ending uh, mempool, uh, never emptying mempool, uh, that it's, uh, you know, it, it remains to be seen because uh, every time that there is fee pressure, a lot of people start optimizing. Uh, and when people optimize, then that relieves the pressure <laughs> and eventually it, it goes to zero again. And so uh, it's uh, uh, the question is, will this even out eventually? And it's hard to know because uh, it's a little bit like saying that eventually we'll run out of optimizations. And I'm just not sure that that's the case. I think there's always going to be optimizations uh, uh, of all kinds of, you know, depending on eventually if the cost is high enough then people are going to start doing all kinds of interesting trade-offs um to to avoid paying so that's kind of i guess uh, let's say that um i actually do think that we will see a a meaningful uh if you if you made me bet yeah i would uh, bet on that there will be a meaningful fee market eventually in in bitcoin yeah but i'm just saying that it's, it's not a certainty i would say yeah, I see. And so we might see it play out and 
I guess most of us, obviously you and me and probably you know all my listeners or most of them would be very, very bullish on Bitcoin. We see it like a lot more people are coming into this space. It just it's a it's a question of time and maybe over the next 10 years or something like that, then really we'll see a lot more people come in. But as you were saying, it's a question of how good will all the clever engineers get at packing more into less to then have that sort of seesaw effect happen and then the fees come back down uh, to very cheap levels. And I guess, as I'm sure you are very well aware, longer term, Bitcoin does have to transition into having a block space market where you know there's like a solid you know baseload of demand to provide the additional revenue for the miners, because uh, you know some of, there might be some bad implications if it doesn't develop within, let's say, fifteen years, something like that, right? right. But fifteen years say? is a very long time, and we have to remember that. <laughs> and this is why, like the people that are like, "Oh, it's going to be needing inflation and this and that," it's like, look, uh, fifteen years. Uh, <laughs> We don't know. If it becomes a problem, uh, and definitely this is a problem that's not going to suddenly appear and hit everybody over the head. Uh, it's a problem that's going to evolve gradually, right? And so if it evolves gradually, it, start, it will make sense to, to work on a solution. And uh, I definitely think that you know, over a four-year uh, halving period, uh, it's something that should be resolvable. <laughs> Um, yeah. So I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not like worried for the sustainability of uh, of uh, the Bitcoin network uh, for the long term. I'm just saying that we're not. We're not yet seeing uh, the evolution of uh, the fee market in in ways that some people like to think that we do. The same goes for Ethereum. Like there was a lot of noise the other day uh, that uh, you know, hey, Ethereum generated more transaction fees on Bitcoin, which is like yes, they did, but. If Bitcoin is unoptimized, then Ethereum is 10x uh, less optimized because they've never had any fee issues. And, and uh, a lot of the usage is, is driven by uh, you know, speculative and investment use, as it is in, in Bitcoin as well. Uh, you know, and, and so like making these comparisons becomes uh, not meaningful because in a lot of ways you're measuring who's optimized and to which degree. And it's hard to know because you don't see all of it. Yeah, that's a really good point. It's it's not an apples to apples comparison because it might be it might be the case that you could argue that Bitcoin and I guess co- colloquially we could say Bitcoin has optimized more around the fees and things like SegWit and people using Lightning and so on. And we should anticipate that over the years, as more and more people adopt these things like Lightning, well then that kind of takes some of the the load off the chain, uh, but given how small Bitcoin is, we will probably see so many more people come into Bitcoin that on the whole, like eventually, like in 15 years time or whatever, by then we would likely see a block space market. Uh, But I think it's also interesting to talk about some of the implications of that, because as I understand, if, so there's a few concerns there. One would be hypothetically, if the block reward so that's the combination of the subsidy and the fees paid if that's too variable we might see start seeing funny behavior from the miners in terms of things like fee sniping Uh, people might not be quite happy with the level of mining security provided so they might need to now wait for more confirmations before having the the right level of assurance i guess there are a few examples do you have any thoughts to share on that I mean, look, uh, when we see those problems, like there are countermeasures for these things, yeah, right? I mean, you could, 
naively uh, miner could just uh, commit uh, x btc to the next block uh, to encourage uh, the next miner to mine uh, on top of it and so on so like there's all of these things i think that uh, when we see the problem uh, we'll assess uh, and smarter people than me uh, will assess uh, the different countermeasures and we'll try some of them and eventually something will probably fly i see yeah because the other issue could be around if there's a lot of reorganization happening that could be quite difficult in terms of using bitcoin practically because let's say you might have a it might make lightning more difficult because i don't know maybe you you wouldn't be sure about whether you need to like close out your channel or things like that as well i suppose for sure yeah for sure but that's that's the thing is like that there are problems but i think that given that they're relatively far away uh, in the time uh, that uh, we should expect that there will also be uh, solutions and when as we know of problems, we already know of a couple of these solutions. We just haven't tested them out yet, so we don't we don't know uh, will it actually work or not, and which one will work, or, and so on. Yeah, and I should stress these are kind of we're kind of talking a little bit theoretically here because I think in practice the most likely scenario is we just see continual you know four year cycles, and each time we bring in a whole new round of people, and Bitcoin is just so small compared to what it will eventually get to that you know it's I think. In the end, it's, you know, maybe we're just talking about all this stuff and it, it won't really matter in the end because there'll just be so many people who want to use Bitcoin. Well, uh, yeah, yeah. But then too, there will be certain problems. So uh, it'll be interesting. Yeah, Scalability issues are fun, I would say. Uh, so look, let's get into Lightning then. So BitRefill has been uh, one of the more well-known Lightning adopters and promoters. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, what you're seeing at the moment or what you're seeing and doing these days uh, with Lightning at BitRefill? Sure. Uh, well, I mean, uh, for uh, when it comes to Lightning, like we've made a, uh, let's say, big strategic bet uh, on Lightning, uh, given that it's what we think is the most likely candidate for being the technology that uh, that brings about uh, the circular economy uh, in, the, in the cryptocurrency world, um, and uh, and so we've uh, we've made a bet uh, on Lightning and made sure to always be you know first and best and, and so on when it comes to both using Lightning um, and uh, but also uh, uh, to some extent building utilities uh, for people that use Lightning and for people that live in uh, in the circular economy that live on crypto and so on um, and so for us uh, we've uh, we always enable uh, different ways of, of new modes of, of lightning stuff um, we see definitely that it's uh, it's increasing um, now that uh, transaction fees are becoming meaningful uh, but it's still uh, it's still niche uh, and I think that, uh, like, had you asked me a year ago, I would have definitely thought that we would have been much more further along uh, in terms of lightning adoption than what we actually are right now. Uh, and I think this is a thing in, in the crypto space in general, that everything moves uh, much, uh, much slower than, than we think and than we'd like. And uh, yeah. Uh, we're still at uh, you know less, less than ten percent of our traffic is is coming in with uh, with Lightning, which I think is 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 low. Like I would have thought it would have been uh, a big chunk of of our uh, on chain volume coming in with Lightning now. 
I see. Do you have any speculations as to why that might be? It's a good question. Um, I think, to be honest, I think the real reason is, uh, I think that, the, <laughs> uh, here's a controversial statement, I think that uh, Lightning ad- adoption is slow uh, for the same reason that the blockchain.com wallet is the largest wallet. And <laughs> uh, <in> that, <laughs> uh, uh, that there is a certain, uh, uh, what do you call it, slowness uh, in uh, uh, in, in uh, when it comes to the masses, and again, the masses are not the people that you see on Twitter, uh, and probably the masses are not the people that are listening to this podcast, and so they will be uh, kind of shocked uh, by, by me saying the, these things. But I think that, um, that yeah, they, it seems like people aren't mo- quick to jump on the uh, on the latest new thing, and they need to be motivated. And I think that uh, high transaction fees are one such motivator um, and uh, then you know in the lightning world things are different uh, you still don't have uh, enough exchanges supporting it which i think is a big big thing uh, given how uh, how it seems like the industry is, is circulating around different kinds of speculative uses uh, you would and the majority of traffic is happening between exchanges uh, it would have been good uh, if uh, if more exchanges uh, uh, were adopting Lightning. I think uh, uh, Bitfinex has done an excellent job with their uh, Lightning presence. And I look forward to, to more uh, major exchanges uh, joining them and building uh, building a Lightning network for exchanges, I guess, or just connecting their exchanges to the Lightning network. Um, sure. And so it's probably fair to say Bitfinex are one of the leaders in terms of exchanges offering Lightning. Uh, I think uh, River is probably another example where they're trying to be like a technology leader with Lightning as well. So uh, tell us a little bit about how the BitRefill and Bitfinex partnership uh, arrangement went. I'd say it went really well. Uh, it's, a, it's a pretty cool integration. Uh, you can check it out uh, if you go to bitfinex.com slash bitrefill. Um, and it basically runs uh, the entirety of the BitRefill website inside of the Bitfinex uh, website in an iframe. Um, but the cool part of it is that the, the payment part actually happens over Lightning. Uh, and so it means that there is no, like, we don't keep a balance with uh, Bitfinex. They don't keep a balance with us. Uh, nobody owes anybody any money at any point. Uh, but uh, when the user goes to make a purchase, uh, there there is an actual withdrawal uh, over Lightning happening from their account uh, that goes straight to us, uh, which is pretty cool. Uh, and I think it's uh, definitely the way that uh, that these uh, integrations are going to be happening uh, in the future. Coming back to the Lightning adoption question, do you think that again comes down to the whole hodling? and number go up stuff versus the circular economy and spending aspects. Do you think that maybe, at, you know, let's say we hit another bull market coming over the next year or whatever, you, uh, do you anticipate then we'd see a lot more people getting onto Lightning in that way, right? Well, I think that, yes, I think that once we see more periods of fee pressure that should drive people towards, uh, uh, towards Lightning, but... Uh, I also, again, it's not only about the the hodling versus the circular economy uh, dichotomy because, again, like a big part of the circular economy is people using blockchain.com. 
Uh, right, uh, and and so it's not uh, the, the debate is not necessarily what you see on Twitter. Um, mm. It's um, yeah, I don't know. I think it's just that I mean, there's different sub communities and cultures, and different of them uh, prioritize uh, different things. Uh, I mean, there's a, a ton of uh, really cool stories about uh, about lightning adoption. Uh, the most interesting one is uh, from the, uh, the community in El Salvador, uh, where they, they actually have a, a sort of a, a, a small type uh, circular economy going already, which is really cool. And there's a lot of these things uh, that are evolving, and there's uh, a lot of people that are like, "What do you mean, not lightning?" Yeah, but there is also like uh, a large chunk of people that uh, they search for Bitcoin wallet in. Uh, uh, in uh, in the app store of uh, of their iPhone or, or their Android phone, and uh, uh, they get you know one of the top options, and it's going to be one of those. Yeah, so it comes down to default for many people, and if blockchain.com doesn't have it, then yeah. Uh, but I suppose in terms of when you let's say you are teaching a friend and they're inter- they just got interested in Bitcoin. Would you teach them Bitcoin on chain, or would you actually teach them Lightning first? It's a good question. Uh, it's a good question. I guess it depends on what I anticipate this person using uh, uh, Bitcoins for. Yeah, right. Uh, if uh, I expect them to to buy them as an investment and hold them in uh, in uh, uh, in storage for years, then probably Lightning doesn't really make sense, right? And so. Uh, whereas if it's somebody who just wants to send transactions, then then yeah, definitely. But in that case, it would probably be uh, def- at least for the for the first uh, attempts, uh, one of the the not your keys uh, types uh, of wallets. Yeah. So let's say, I mean, I, for me, I actually do something similar as well. Like I basically try and figure out. Well, does this person? Are they looking for, you know, the savings technology, number go up stuff? Okay, get them on a hardware wallet or multi-signature if they're, you know, getting enough for it. Um, and then if they're interested in the day-to-day stuff, well, then, yeah, I will typically try and show them Phoenix or Breeze at that point because those are some of the nice kind of easy phone wallets to teach someone who's just learning and they just want, like, the wallet that manages it for them. Uh, what's your experience been like with teaching people Lightning? Yeah, uh, I agree with everything that you say. Yeah, I think that those those wallets are are excellent, yeah, and uh, there's a couple of others as well uh, that are really good. And yeah, I don't know. Like I, I uh, to be honest, I don't, I don't actually go around preaching Bitcoin all that much uh, in my uh, in my surroundings. Uh, not sure why. I just uh, focus, I think, on uh, uh, on the the Bitcoin users that are that are out there already. Of course, yeah, yeah. For me, it's more. I'm I'm talking here more like if I'm at a Bitcoin meetup and I'm trying to teach a new coiner, I might demonstrate a quick payment with Lightning or something right. like that, just as a way to kind of give them a, a feel of what's going on here. Um, but I guess it can be confusing as well. Like, let's say you're trying to teach that new coiner and then you've got it like if they've just seen it for the first time then you've got to kind of explain oh well see the wallet can actually swap out from lightning into bitcoin and it's like you probably already lost them already right <laughs> well yeah i mean it's 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 tricky yeah all of this stuff is tricky and uh, in the end you will need to abstract away all of the channel stuff uh, right? uh, but but it's always a question of uh, at which point to abstract away the controls or 
the uh, or do you optimize for the power users that can handle the controls or uh, or do you figure out ways to, to satisfy both and that's a common ux uh, problem in, in in the field in terms of lightning obviously one of the big ones is around having incoming capacity and so on and i know this is something you have a service around that uh, can you tell us a little bit about your experience in terms of offering that service uh, and, you know, just running one of the well-known lightning nodes. Right. Well, I mean, we, we built this, uh, I think it was over a year ago now, um, uh, we built the services for getting uh, channels open from us in a, in a similar way to how ISP opens, uh, uh, opens a connection uh, to your, your phone right, or your computer. Uh, and so this became uh, later evolved into the, uh, the the LSB notion, the Lightning Service Providers, and now it seems like both uh, uh, the well, Lightning Labs is working on a service in, in this area, and there is uh, uh, there is functionality in the Phoenix Wallet that is very similar to things that we built, uh, and Breeze Wallet is doing uh, things in that direction as well. So it it's. Uh, and when we built it, it was definitely it still is. I mean, it's a tool for uh, for power users, but it it definitely uh, started off uh, a lot of interesting uh, things uh, in terms of like where to uh, where to build. I think uh, unexpected side reaction is that it kicked off uh, the usage of the Edlin URL format, uh, which in the beginning was specifically designed to, uh, between us and the Bitcoin Lightning wallet uh, to open Thor channels uh, with that wallet. Uh, and then it kind of has evolved and, and suddenly uh, we find that, uh, that LNURL is actually fixing uh, certain uh, things that I would say are like design flaws in the original, uh, in, <laughs> in the original Lightning, which is really cool. And, and I think that that's like the LNURL community uh, is probably the most uh, uh, the most vibrant uh, community right now uh, in terms of uh, building uh, building things with lightning and thinking about these things and so on yeah there's there's definitely a few contributors there uh, fiat Jeff and um, I forgot the other guy's name who I was thinking of but yeah there's a few of these guys who are out there trying to get light LN URL which is a really slick thing from a user experience point of view because you know people who want to play games and then withdraw their sats and things like that using LN URLs very, very slick compared to the typical copy paste flow. And that might be another way that people start getting into lightning just because it's easier if they want to do those small spends and with LN URL. Yeah. I mean, it fixes, uh, like it, it fixes, uh, this thing where lightning uses a different UI than transactions, uh, usually do for deposits and withdrawals. Yeah, which I think maybe is one of the hold, uh, holdups for exchanges adopting Lightning, that they, they need to build a slightly different UI flow and educate uh, educate their support people and so on. Whereas with Lightning URL, you, you, you literally have your deposit address. You can scan the QR code and everything works like in the old world. Uh, I, I would probably say that if I were an exchange looking at uh, integrating Lightning, I would probably start with uh, uh, doing deposits over uh, over LNURL um, because it's uh, it's just so simple uh, and it's uh, yeah it, it fits with uh, all of your uh, front end code that you already have um, it makes things 
make things easier for everybody. Yeah, and uh, I don't know why it, it, like when the Lightning Protocol was designed, uh, that uh, it was decided that it would focus on the invoice uh, uh, invoice payment model. Uh, I guess there, there there's definitely benefits with that as well, uh, but we're also seeing that there's benefits in doing things that are compatible to the to the old world, even if it's if it's uh, less efficient. And I know uh, some of the Lightning developers like Rusty are interested in trying to build something like that, like offers and things at the protocol level. Uh, but until then, uh, you know, LNURL is uh, seems to be but the yeah. But that, that's the thing that we always have in, in crypto that we're building these really sophisticated things. Uh, where I would argue that maybe we should like start with okay, like can we get uh, the ten largest exchanges on Lightning? You know, can we get it integrated into most wallets? For me, that's always been that, like my interest is usually in uh, in getting the things that we do have out, uh, rather than focusing on like what, what's the coolest thing that we could build. Um, I think that uh, when things are being used, uh, that's uh, that's the coolest part. Right. Yeah. And look, to be fair, there are some things that you know it kind of takes being used in practice to realize what's needed, and so. Well, for sure, and then there's also the whole. There's also the, the whole area of, uh, you know, when you build new things, then maybe people will actually use this, uh, these things in ways that they haven't done before, uh, which is the really cool part. So I, 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 yeah, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not talking down on building cool new things on Lightning. Uh, on the contrary, uh, you know, I want to encourage it in every way. Um, but I also want us to remember to, to get it out there and to get it used. You know, maybe another angle is uh, over time, although this won't be for a little while, but, you know, maybe there's some level of privacy benefit there around using Lightning as compared to, let's say, a naive Bitcoin transaction. Obviously, it's probably not as private as using a CoinJoin transaction, but I guess it's a bit of a debatable point um, around, you know, at least it's not hitting the chain and being recorded forever, right? Exactly. I I don't know. I think that the the, the privacy aspects are, of Lightning are are quite underestimated. Like like everything, it, it doesn't solve the whole problem forever. As uh, uh, even a coin chain does not solve the entire problem forever, but it does solve the problem of on chain analysis uh, to some extent. Uh, and uh, uh, I think that uh, uh, yeah. Uh, I'm a little bit, uh, I guess, uh, I would have wanted for there to be a, a privacy-focused uh, Lightning wallet by now. I'm not sure why why we haven't seen it either from uh, from some of the privacy-focused wallets uh, that are doing uh, coin joins or the other way around. You know, but uh, intersection of uh, of uh, coin joins and Lightning should actually be quite useful. Yeah, I think that's kind of the dream. Uh, and it may just be that we're just super early and right now developer time, reviewer time, et cetera, is so limited that teams have had to, I guess, prioritize which one they want to do. Yeah. And so then I guess naturally they've either done one or the other. And so I guess that's probably that's probably at least part of the reason why we haven't seen kind of a meshing of CoinJoin and Lightning, even though there would be some cool benefits like theoretically. Yeah, I think the benefits, uh, like I said, uh, they're they're big, and not just for privacy, also for you know the efficiency of opening lightning channels, opening them, coin joins would probably be a 
be a good idea. Again, I know that Lightning Labs is working on Loop uh, and so on that are doing these things as well. So th- these things are happening, uh, and it is uh, evolving. At uh, uh, the, the tech is evolving at a good pace, I would say. Yeah. Uh, the question is how we can get it into into more more users' uh, hands and to get. And maybe that's the interesting topic to discuss: is like how do we get more of the users to care uh, about uh, the things that uh, that make Bitcoin unique. Maybe that's an interesting topic. Yeah, well, I think, for, well, technically, I mean, if you do it correctly, like you could be more private if you, you know, using Samurai Wallet and so on, where I think because there's been discussion uh, or people hear on the news that, oh, this person using Bitcoin got busted. They think, oh, Bitcoin's not private. And okay, technically it's pseudonymous, et cetera. Um, but if you use it the right way, if you you know use the right techniques, you can use it privately, but it's just a bit more, it takes a little bit more work, right? Right. Well, I mean, uh, look, many people, uh, it's, it's, it, it is a bit weird that there is no clear answer to the question, like, is Bitcoin private? Is <laughs> yeah, well, it might be if you're if you're a sophisticated user uh, and you know which tools to use and how to use them. Uh, but it definitely isn't by default. Uh, and a lot of people that get busted get busted because they they like they buy bitcoins on an exchange where they give their personal information and they send coins from that exchange to a dark web to buy drugs and then they get busted. Uh, and uh, um, yeah, <laughs> like. Um, and and it's it's tough uh, because there's simultaneously uh, the the idea that that it is private, but there's also the idea that it's not private. And I I know that it's tricky for for a newcomer to uh, to assess <laughs> what's what. Yeah, and I th- I can I totally sympathize because to a person who's not deeply into this world, like say you or me like we are, it can be quite con- like confronting on the outside to sort of see what to the outside it might look like these crazy holy wars going on between, uh, you know, all the, <laughs> between the privacy wallets. And I mean, I, I personally, yeah. I mean, I'm kind of more on the samurai wallet side there. Um, you want to elaborate on that? I'm, I, I'm, uh, I want to hear, like for me, I, I observe uh, and uh, uh, I, I think I'm, I'm leaning in a similar way, but it's, but it's, it's hard because I, I'm not, sophisticated enough to assess the, the actual tech on it and given the gravity of the accusations uh, it's it's a little bit uh, uh, scary let's say difficult yeah. yeah and I, I i mean i, I yeah, certainly I, I, hear your thoughts. I have to be careful here right like i like firstly i want to say i'm not a privacy expert right like this is from my reading from my understanding from my talking with various people in the community i think Right now, today, if you want the best possible Bitcoin privacy, I think if you run your own Bitcoin full node, like your Dojo, and you're using Samurai Wallet Whirlpool, and you're using the correct post-mix tools and so on, you're doing Stonewall, Stonewall X2, these transactions that either simulate a coin join or they are a coin join, I think that to me makes the most sense. But in terms of like this whole kind of back and forward warring and disclosures and vulnerabilities and so on, I think... To me, the reason I think the Samurai Wallet guys are, I think their approach is better, is that they have set up their wallet in a more holistic way that the user doesn't have to consciously make so many decisions about what they're doing. So, for example, it's very easy for a user to, in Wasabi, to like, you know, uh, last I checked that there's like a send all button and, uh, and, and some of the 
comments that come up around things like, oh, see, that was just user error. And at the same time, you see even like Wasabi, you know, users uh, or Wasabi contributors themselves who've like doxed things from trying to do Wasabi. So for me, that is probably, I just think the, I just think the samurai approach, like assuming you're running your own dojo, I think that's a more holistically sound approach. And I think the other important part for me, at least from my reading of the articles and the back and forth, is that I think the samurai approach is around aiming for the super high quality, high entropy mix and actually creating no deterministic links between the coins going into a coin join and the coins coming out of a coin join. Whereas I think some of the criticisms that have been leveled at Wasabi are in relation to things like having unmixed change, uh, not actually creating zero deterministic links in the coin join, having address reuse in the coin join, and you know just consistently having address reuse. So to me, that seems like, well, hang on, address reuse has never been cool, right? So I guess there are a few points there, but I mean, what do you think? Yeah, I uh, I, I, I second uh, your analysis uh, uh, on all points, I would say. Um, but but again, uh, yeah, it's uh, the the tricky part is uh, uh, I think we all agree that sensible defaults are uh, are uh, very important, especially when it comes to this stuff. Uh, and again, it yeah. kind of goes to show that even when using privacy wallet, you're not necessarily always safe. So. Yeah, yeah. And look, I think in fairness, the criticisms that people would level at Samurai, right, they would say things like, oh, but hang on, they have mixing where it's not only dojo pools. And so theoretically, even though the Whirlpool coordinator is a different server to the dojo server that they run for the users who are not able to run their own dojo, but I think it just gets really complicated because now you're starting to think about, okay, So if you run a dojo and you do the correct thing of mixing and remixing, crucially, then it would be, to me, it seems extremely like tinfoil hat unlikely that someone is going to like, you know, okay, hypothetically, let's say you're like a democracy activist or some human rights journalist or activist in some country with an oppressive government. And let's say you set up your dojo and you receive and you, you know, you do the correct flow using your own dojo. What's the likelihood that this oppressive government is going to like go to the Iceland server and like somehow and like get all the XPubs and then try to reverse out from that because they won't have your XPub. So then they would have to try to reverse out which one is yours. I, I, I mean, and then the other accusation as well. And again, this is difficult in the space because everyone's trying to, you know, fling stuff at the other guy and they're trying to say oh well see what if your chain analysis or what if you're actually just selling the info because you have an incentive to do it and I, and then it just becomes like really difficult for anyone to sort of prove that they're a genuine person trying to provide privacy tools and I, I guess you've also got to consider like if they really were malicious i don't know whether it's samurai or wasabi like would they have acted the way they did i mean i, I I guess that's also it's these are also things know, that yeah. people have to consider. Yeah, but it's uh, I, I think uh, I agree that you should be careful with uh, uh, attributing uh, malice and accusing of, uh, of of malice. It's a pretty strong accusation uh, that needs uh, a lot of uh, yeah, of evidence. At the same time, I think that it is interesting to think about the question of like 
whether or not there are uh, bad actors and uh, in, in the space uh, and uh, and what to do if someone should uh, turn out to be a, a bad actor not to say that anybody is a bad actor like i had a, a couple of uh, interesting uh, conversations with uh, uh, with my father uh, we're from originally from the from the soviet union uh, who told me that he found out uh, and when he was a student he was like active in different kinds of, kind of student theater where where ideas were discussed uh, which were not supposed to be discussed and uh, that they found out uh, many years later that uh, one of the guys uh, in their in their theater group uh, was an uh, informant uh, and that uh, uh, this person was uh, informing on like n- nothing had actually happened but that he was just uh, filing reports uh, to uh, I guess some part of the political bureaus uh, uh, about the things that were being uh, discussed in this uh, uh, students' uh, theater group, right? And it kind of got me thinking about uh, about the crypto space as well. Uh, like, who knows? Like, uh, who knows uh, if there are uh, any intelligence actors uh, operating in the space? Uh, what they're doing? Probably most of them are just collecting information. Um, what kind of information do they get, and so on? So it, it, I think it's useful yeah, I mean, it's scary, to, to right? have a to have a adversarial uh, mindset. I think that this is one of the one of the key things uh, about uh, about Bitcoin is that what if uh, the service that I'm using is evil in different ways, and what are the different ways that they could be evil uh, against me, and so on? Yeah, which is like yeah, why, uh, like this uh, this uh, like privacy focused things. And, so on are important right and i think you, you you definitely raised a lot of interesting points there because well i actually recall when uh well when i went to baltic honey badger last time in latvia and i went to the um the museum one of the museums there and they were talking about the way Cheka would try to uh compromise people and so they would kind of hold it over someone's head like that you know we've got we're going to do something to your family or whatever. And that's why we need you to become an informant for us. Right. And so it's kind of, you know, there are all sorts of crazy things like that, that could happen. And exactly. Somebody could be a bad actor without being a bad person. (laughs) Right. Uh, Like they could be pressured or whatever. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So that's, that part is tricky. And um, I guess you sort of have to look at what people are doing, what info you're giving to that party as well. Right. Because, depending on what the wallet is and what the the way you use it do you have to give up any info do you have to give a name name or email exactly. or whatever and what could be done with that information exactly so yeah, and not just by them but also but by by i guess any hacker that has access to that information yeah so it's a tricky space and i think you you kind of have to look at well i guess one indicator that i've noticed that you know some of the privacy wallet guys try to look at is darknet market use right so they're not like explicitly it's not, that's not the only market for them, but obviously it is a market for them. Uh, and I guess if you see people using these techniques and technologies in the darknet market, then there's probably a, like, it's kind of, there's, there's real world practical use. And you know, there are people who are literally relying on that technology. Well, I think it's, uh, I think like from from the, the, the studies that have been made that show that darknet use is a, uh, a very small fraction of uh, of the activity on the network. I actually think that, that like there's 
probably it's not the most meaningful to talk about talking to you with regards to privacy. Like uh, I think that privacy is is such a huge factor. Uh, one thing that I've come to realize uh, lately, uh, or maybe a little bit uh, not lately, but, but been thinking about lately, uh, is that if you think about like old timer uh, Bitcoiners, like people who mined a bunch of coins in uh, in uh, who knows what, like uh, you know, and they're sitting in a considerable wealth in, in Bitcoin, and for them to sign up uh, to a to a service that. Uh, that requires you to do full KYC, so you register your passport and your address, uh, and probably make an on-chain transaction that uh, connects to the rest of your wallet. Like, is whatever it is that that service offers you, is that worth it? Right, uh, and uh, and when you start thinking from from that perspective, like, okay, I'm sending in my my uh, my address and passport here to some service. Who knows? Like, even if the service uh, is probably uh, super honorable, but uh, what if they get hacked? Like this, uh, eventually, if uh, these data banks become huge honeypots, and uh, and eventually, uh, like somebody wants to uh, uh, wants to hack it, and then suddenly it says there, "Hey, so and so lives on that and that address," you know. Um, and, and just from a perspective like that, I think it's 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 enough uh, to uh, to motivate like why we should want uh, privacy on its own, and uh, that it's like that it's not necessarily because we're looking to do something uh, something that is disallowed. Uh, it can be, I mean, it should just be a default state of things. I guess yeah, just people have to be careful if they're spending, for example, out of a big UTXO. Well, then that's especially where you want to be careful around using CoinJoin techniques so that you've broken the link, um, and that people can't trace that back on the chain to your big UTXO, right? So that's right. probably. But but it, but it also depends on like you know does it, if on the other hand if you, well I guess uh, like privacy is important on all sides and CoinJoins is good for the for the on-chain privacy, but I think it's also important with the. Uh, the off-chain privacy uh, in terms of uh, where you uh, custody, uh, pun intended, uh, your personal information, uh, right? Uh, and uh, because uh, uh, like if we talk about custodial wallets and so on, uh, they they hold your coins for a while uh, until you withdraw them, uh, and, and there is that uh, risk profile. But somebody who, who has your personal information, they have that personal information forever. <laughs> Yeah, that's tricky. And depending on the data retention laws, like I think in Australia, it's something like seven years or um, when the customer terminates their relationship with the supplier or the vendor, it's seven years from that date, I think in certain financial services contexts. So, I mean, but then the other thing is you don't know how good, say these banks or whatever are with data deletion. So they might have accidentally kept it because they weren't good with data deletion. They should have backups. I mean, Again, like uh, you know, seven years or forever or or, or uh, whatever it may be, like uh, it makes sense to be be careful with uh, uh, with what trace you, you traces you leave about yourself on the internet. Yeah, I think it's yeah, uh, right. Uh, it's uh, at this point it should be seen as like a fundamental core principle, something that it's uh, that is very important to uh, to fight about and. I guess it's one of the things that also I guess part of the uh, uh, in the uh, samurai guys uh, uh, crusade about uh, um, 
like that there is a trade-off between uh, wanting uh, the number go up, uh, you know, the, the adoption and and and, uh, and privacy, right? Uh, and we see this uh, trade-off in play uh, a lot of times when, uh, I mean, like for example, we have this, uh, uh, like the stacking sats uh, meme. Yeah, which is a great meme, but it also usually implies that you register with some service uh, that will require your uh, your personal information to be stored in a uh, in a in a data bank, right? And so, uh, oh, right. Whereas if you if you say that hey, people should not use uh, services that require your personal information, well, that limits <laughs> uh, significantly, uh, right? The realm uh, of uh, uh, of uh, possible services for people to use and so there is this this weird uh, trade-off i mean the extreme example is like uh, this uh, uh, fully custodial uh, like uh, grayscale or the uh, the bitcoin etn uh, here in, uh, in scandinavia where you know you clearly don't have control of your coins ever but you buy them through an exchange it's super simple uh, it's it's good for for getting number to go up, but it doesn't uh, achieve uh, many of the other uh, goals, and it probably makes it harder to achieve uh, those goals and uh, of privacy and uh, autonomy and so on uh, in the long run. Um, and it's uh, I think that like conflicts about values are only interesting when when both values and both sides are are, are desirable. Right? We we want number to go up but we also want uh, <laughs> uh, right but we also want privacy uh, to to go up um, in in whatever numbers we we measure that uh, and when these uh, these two desires are at conflict uh, creates an interesting uh, that that becomes an interesting uh, question of, uh, of values yeah let me give you an example i guess maybe the way i'm thinking about that is Maybe it's like a parallel with how if you look at the different core developers and their thoughts on things, like you might see, okay, on one end of the spectrum, you've got you know Luke Dasher who wants 300 kilobyte blocks. And on the other end of the spectrum, there are some developers who believe that maybe longer term, we need to see a rise in the block size. And then there's some in the middle who are kind of more like, so long as anyone, like a you know an average person can run a full node, well, that's what's important, what counts. Maybe it's a similar thing here with privacy as well. It's like, so long as the average person can attain privacy using Bitcoin if they buy non-KYC or if they earn it non-KYC or if they mine it and they use the right privacy techniques, can they be private? And I guess maybe that's a good uh, middle position. What do you think? Yeah, maybe. I, I don't know. Like, um, I think that we should consider, I mean, if you look outside in the world, there's turmoil uh, and uh, it's not unthinkable that... Uh, that uh, in a world of turmoil, Bitcoin will uh, will be successful in, in some ways. And uh, given that turmoil is chaos, that means that some of uh, some of the powers that be uh, will be uh, opposed to it. Uh, and so, if uh, there is definitely, I would say, a risk of uh, uh, the Bitcoin network being being split uh, into the uh, the KYC side and the not KYC side. Uh, and uh, that would be not great, <laughs> uh, right? Yeah. So, uh, I don't know. Like, I don't, I don't have any remedies to these solutions other than the things that 
that are being discussed by by smarter people than me. Uh, but it is uh, a topic that I think we should be uh, we should be mindful of. Uh, that uh, yeah. That we don't. Uh, I mean, I, I guess it. I mean, maybe it's similar to how like uh, in a in a band. Yeah, they, there comes a point where they get the choice of selling out. Like, uh, right? Do we do the the popular music that is gonna get us paid, or do we do the music that we actually believe in? Yeah, and maybe there is something like that here as well. And, uh, and again, it's probably not a uh, binary choice, but rather some type of scale uh, and figuring out what is the appropriate uh, level that we want to uh, want to be at. But but it's also important to acknowledge that they like also uh, that like I'm also simultaneously to this I'm also not a fan of people that are like preaching that uh, you know you must use Bitcoin like this or you must use Bitcoin like that because the whole point of Bitcoin is that you can do whatever whatever it is that you want with it yeah, right so uh, and that we, we kind of need to also acknowledge that this should be a network where all of these different participants can. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, interact with each other as best as they can. Yeah, maybe, maybe that is uh, maybe that that is the goal to optimize for is to sort of uh, uh, I don't know uh, to to optimize for differently minded people to to be able to to interact. Uh, Bitcoin is the money of enemies, and so on. Yeah, that's right. And uh, well, I guess the other thing with that is also could it kill Bitcoin if it was no longer fungible? Would that be a problem, or would it? actually still be an overall win in that it stops governments from inflating further and so i guess the if you were to maximize yeah and that's a tough kind of conversation to have because there might so hypothetically if every sat was kyc'd would that still eventually like some you know longer term would that still result in governments losing the power of money and maybe that's still a win overall or do you think you know we can sort of we can try to get both and we can like have a hard money that is also private and there are others who would make that argument that you can't have this unless it is private so it's it's a tough question i don't think i've necessarily got any good answers and uh it's uh, something that we'll just have to evolve over time i think yeah i mean uh, bitcoin is a bundling of a bunch of different things uh, and uh, maybe we, uh, you know, there is the sound money aspect uh, of uh, uh, preventing the government inflation uh, to it. There is the privacy aspect. Uh, there, there's a bunch of this. There's the, the technical sort of uh, anybody can build on it, permissionless uh, uh, aspect, uh, efficiency aspects, uh, and uh, it's like a composite of these things. And I don't know. I think we're also starting to see to some extent. Uh, other projects that try to satisfy uh, parts uh, of of these things, but not other things, and so on. Right? I mean, you should be in a lot of ways. Like I would argue that many many altcoins are are fiat currencies, right? Uh, the private fiat currencies. Uh, but what is to say that uh, that the cryptocurrency must necessarily be sound money? Maybe uh, maybe a fiat cryptocurrency is also useful for certain things for certain people, and so on. And, like, yeah, I'm not arguing for that. <laughs> I'm just uh, uh, rhetorically here. And I think, you know, the whole conversation around CBDC, central bank digital currencies and whatever is only, right. that's only going to grow. So right. obviously yeah. we'll all be here with our Bitcoins. And, you know, I think over time people would just see, you know, number go up in Bitcoins so and they'll want to get some. And um, 
then it's a question of you know how how ready is uh, all the Bitcoin tooling and services to kind of take that on. And maybe it's always going to be a struggle, like uh, that, like just like privacy is uh, on on the regular internet. That there, it's just an ongoing uh, struggle that will always be ongoing. Maybe the the battle lines will change every time, but but there will probably always be people that argue for more privacy uh, and and try to build things for more privacy, and, and others that that uh, build for uh, other values such as efficiency, for example. Yeah, that's right. And you mentioned battle lines. Uh, I think you were just before we went online. You we were chatting about this idea of the battle lines that have been drawn around uh, COVID nineteen, or as I prefer to call it, hysteria nineteen. Uh, but tell us, what do you think? Well, I think that it's been, uh, for me, it's been a very interesting last six months. Uh, I think it's been very interesting for everybody. Um, but. Uh, uh, I've, I see it as a great opportunity to evaluate uh, uh, the biases uh, that we have uh, and the different uh, inclinations uh, in, in, in thinking and so on. Like, uh, and it's curious how, for example, in the beginning, it felt like uh, there was the, like, like the, the people were a little bit all over the place in terms of like, uh, you know, uh, the assessment of uh, the danger and, and what what should be done and so on. Whereas like over some time, uh, it kind of, uh, uh, let's say, uh, settled down uh, into the usual political camps, uh, both in terms of like, <laughs> wing and right wing within each country, right? Uh, and the countries are very inconsistent with other countries, but also in, in like in the crypto world is that like the, the meat eaters tend to say that, uh, uh, that uh, hysteria 19, that it's all, uh, <laughs> not, it's not a thing. Yeah, whereas other, uh, whereas uh, you know, uh, the if you go on the sort of Ethereum camp, is definitely a thing, uh, and <laughs> so on, and and it's it's interesting how how we went from from that to this, but I think it's also interesting to uh, to assess, uh, like for me, it's a sign of uh, uh, like a sign of groupthink is when you agree with uh, with the group uh, on every subject. Right. So, for example, I guess uh, if your uh, like uh, if your uh, views on the Bitcoin block size debate are consistent with your views on dietary preferences, uh, consistent with your views <laughs> on the Corona strategy, that then that at least warrants uh, evaluation. Uh, it might just be uh, that that all of these people are are, are just happened to to uh, fall into the same lines, but it's also possible that it's not, and and, and in some cases. In some cases, uh, uh, and in some cases, uh, also, I think, like for me, uh, I ended up. Uh, and so here, okay, here's an interesting uh, analogy that, like, many Bitcoiners in the question of like government mostly good or government mostly bad, right? Most, most Bitcoiners tend to fall in the government mostly bad category, uh, which which led to a situation in which uh, uh, most Bitcoiners were opposed to the specific country's uh, corona strategy um, yeah right? uh, and, and 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 which created this weird battle of like no my country's corona strategy is worse than your country's corona strategy <laughs> <laughs> yeah because uh, that's that, that is kind of where, where we are because because like you feel that uh, the australian is, is, is hysterical whereas i feel like the, the swedish one I actually uh, maybe that is to to needless people dying um but 
and and it's kind of like i don't know it's these things are yeah, are curious and at the same time like when you find yourself uh on the on an opposing camp it's also an interesting uh moment to reflect like hey suddenly i agree with uh uh, with uh, like uh, Balaji Srinivasan uh, on a lot of things. Okay, interesting. I don't usually do that. <laughs> okay, but like it's helpful for for assessing. Like, uh, okay, is it that I'm inconsistent here and actually he's wrong about all things always, or or is it that uh, uh, is it that uh, you know maybe he's right about this thing, or I don't know. It's uh, I think. Uh, this whole period has been useful for, from from those regards, and also given that like, the different camps have been making predictions about the future, uh, that uh, within six months like, many uh, have already been been able to be uh, to be evaluated, right? So we can uh, sort of uh, uh, assess and, and draw some learnings, uh, like okay, these things that that we believed turned out to be wrong, why were they wrong, and these things that we believed actually turned out to be right, and why did we believe them, and so on. Yeah, I'll tell you what, I saw some interesting correlations as well, right? So as an example, and you probably, I wonder what you think, but isn't it funny how a lot of the same people who are pro-Brexit and were pro-Trump in, you know, in, the, in the 2016 election, and let's say a lot of the people who are more on the climate skeptic side tended to all line up on a similar side in terms of covid don't you think except for sweden uh, in sweden we have the opposite uh, and that's kind of uh, i guess what, what made it interesting for me um, uh, because again like uh, it's uh, uh, it, it's this government default bad uh, uh, attitude uh, that that we have which i you know in a lot of ways kind of like uh, but uh, um, but like here in Sweden, for example, pro- probably fair that we are in a similar camp uh, with the uh, in the Corona question uh, with the Brexiteers and, and Trump and, and so on. Uh, but like, don't tell anybody that. <laughs> like, if, if people <laughs> found out that you know our our social democratic government uh, actually shares a lot of the same views with with, with Trump, like people will go bananas. Uh, but like, if you go issue by issue, then it's like there's a lot of similarities here. Um, uh, it's like it's more in alignment than than not, yeah. and so again, like th- this is a good opportunity to like okay assess, <laughs> you know where where are we? What is the different uh, 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 you know group things taking us? It got me actually thinking about about uh, an aspect of uh, uh, if I can go on a rant uh, five minutes maybe. Um, for sure an aspect of like uh, of, of maximalism uh, and specifically the the flavor of maximalism of uh, of dismissing uh, the new thing right uh, like I think that if we look at uh, if we look at uh, uh, for example okay um, uh, zoom out we're still on the, on the COVID question uh, if we look at Sweden's corona strategy which has been I guess uh, uh, most people agree, uh, uh, slightly different in, in attitude from, from the rest of the world. Um, it's not a controversial new strategy. Uh, on the contrary, the Swedish strategy is the, the tried and tested since 100 years back. Uh, and uh, uh, and the, the, the author of the, uh, of 
of it is also wrote one of the textbooks and so on. Right. And, and, and so I think that, and you'll see where I'm going with it, because this is more of a Bitcoin, but the, but the current stuff is an analogy, is that what happens in, in the world of, uh, I think, at least this is all like my uh, speculating about these things, uh, is that in the world of, uh, of uh, infectious diseases, there's usually a lot of noise. Like, ah, oh, this disease popped up in Asia, and it's probably not going to be anything. And most of them are not going to be anything. Right? And so you, you like probably best to not overreact uh, to, to every new thing that, that gets some, some, some hype uh, somewhere. Um, and, and so over time, and, and I guess this is like similar to, uh, to in, in my view, uh, to how like projects in crypto show up. And it's like, yeah, it's probably not, not useful. Ah, it's probably broken. It's probably best to, to like, not devote uh, attention to it because most of it is going to be crap. Uh, like the vast, vast, vast majority of it is going to be crap. And so, uh, but over time, like this type of uh, attitude uh, is it, going to be right in, you know, 99 point something percent of the time. Uh, and I think that if we look at the Swedish Corona strategy, it was definitely right about a lot of things. Some of them controversial, uh, right? Uh, uh, it's been right about, uh, probably about that it's not beneficial to force people uh, and that maybe getting buy-in from the people is a good thing. It's probably right about the schools. Uh, it's probably right about the, but a, a lot of this stuff. However, it was uh, not right uh, in terms of dismissing the danger entirely. Uh, and uh, that led uh, to a situation where a lot of less informed and more hype-sensitive uh, uh, countries uh, that did uh, you know, 90% of things wrong uh, still ended up with a better outcome uh, because of, uh, you know, it's like a Nassim Taleb type uh, thinking that there's like the risk of uh, black swan things uh, and, and what you end up missing uh, when, if you get too good uh, at dismissing things that are mostly noise, is that you risk uh, dismissing uh, the one little thing uh, that, uh, that is not noise. And and so if you go back to the to the crypto thing they in the in the part of i think the, the the maximalistic argument is that you know 99% of crypto projects outside of bitcoin are are just noise um and they are <laughs> um and i've <laughs> in and, and i've in the past uh, been saying things like you know hey actually respect the no coiners because they're like 99% right uh, and they, they get there with like no effort, right? It costs them uh, like no thinking <laughs> to just dismiss all of it and they're right about 99% of the stuff. But I think one thing that, that like I have a little bit uh, nuanced my view is that sometimes it's not the percentage of times that you're right that matters. Like, and if you think about in terms of like if you zoom back, if you talk Bitcoin about early Bitcoin history and you zoom back to 2010, 2011, uh, and, and you take an attitude of like, I'm going to invest money into uh, 10 uh, crazy Ponzi scheme looking uh, uh, new money type setups. Right. And, uh, and one of them uh, happens to be Bitcoin and the other, the other nine end up uh, going to, to nothing. You're still going to be a very rich and successful person now. Right, uh, given the the the, the outside uh, outsized uh, returns, and so it, it's uh, and, and probably 
and it's probably going to get me flack for this. But like, if you're in 2014, uh, if you invested in 10 different altcoin projects, and one of them happened to be Ethereum, probably would have been a, been a good investment. Uh, and so, uh, even if you even if you entirely lost uh, lost uh, your money in, in in the other nine of ten, which is probably also goes together with like how uh, this the the sort of uh, uh, the VC uh, Silicon Valley uh, part of the community were also the ones that very quickly uh, identified uh, the danger uh, of the thing. Uh, like we had, uh, for example, Bolajis Srinivasan and some other people that were like very early in uh, in uh, in calling out that there was danger abound, and that like probably even if they're wrong about ninety percent or ninety nine percent of the stuff. Then, like, even if you're, uh, even if you're wrong about ninety nine percent, but you're, you you happen to be right about the one thing that matters, then, then maybe that is actually a better outcome uh, than being right ninety nine percent of the time. What do you think? So, I guess some of your comments are you're sort of tying into that idea that maybe, you know, some people who bought in and it was an accident of timing and of luck versus skill uh, and you know some of those people who if they just bought into ETH early or whatever then they would have gotten rich if they sold out at the top or whatever um, but I, I think to me there's more to it than that I, I like I guess you know look we always have to maintain some level of humility but at the same time I think you know it is possible to reason about these things and to try to sort the wheat from the chaff and I think those people who were able to do that with Bitcoin and see oh okay hey this thing with a fixed supply oh, wow, like it, the no government controls it, like that would be historically significant and it's important and that's why I wanted to get some and so on. And um, I guess it's not it's not to say that, oh, yeah, whoever got in, because look, some of those people who got in early, maybe they were lucky, but I think it's also fair to say some of those people who got in early were skilled. And I think in the Bitcoin world, like bringing it to the kind of Corona 19 or whatever, um, there were some who were better at sorting the wheat from the chaff and figuring out, oh, hold on, some of this, some things aren't smelling right statistically, that people are overstating the level of risk and they're overstating the CFR, the case fatality rate, and they didn't statistically sample it correctly. And that's why it looks right now like it's really deadly. But actually, if you look at where the sampling was better, then it actually isn't that high. And the, so it is a real virus. It's just that the risk is being dramatically overstated so i don't know i guess that's kind of high level how i'm thinking about it but w- w- did i answer you there or i'm not quite sure um my audio cut off for like a minute um so i i, I missed a, a big uh, part so oh sure, sure. Maybe yeah, so I, I guess yeah so i guess like summing it up i guess some of it is some of it is an accident. Maybe some for some people, it is an accident of luck and timing. And for other people, it is really a question of skill. They were just better at sorting the wheat from the chaff. And, you know, for some people who are in this, and I'm probably in this camp, I'm in, I'm in here for the sound money aspects. And I obviously now I also want the privacy aspects of Bitcoin, uh, but that's kind of the prior part. Um, but when it comes to like, was it luck or skill? I guess I have to sort of go more on the side of, hey, there was some skill involved while still, you know, maintaining some level of humility here. It's not like, oh, yeah, because I, I got this one thing right means I'm right about all these other things. Certainly not. Um, but I guess it's like the whole precautionary principle aspects of it. I, I just think, 
I, I like Taleb's books, but I, I kind of think he got this stuff a little bit wrong. I think he ended up a little bit on the um, overstating the risk level. Right. I, I would say that the thing is that what you don't want to end up is with uh, with being smart and ending up with a worse worse outcome than somebody who is being dumb, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah. Because then 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 if you're uh, if if you're being smart and you end up outsmarted by somebody who's who's actually dumb, uh, then maybe you weren't <laughs> that uh, that smart uh, at all. Maybe like uh, and yeah. like there is this. Um, uh, this uh, Clark's law uh, it says that like when a uh, distinguished by but el- elderly scientist uh, states that something is possible, uh, he's almost certainly right. But when he states that something is impossible, he's very probably wrong. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I, I think that there, I, no, I, I guess like what what I'm I'm what I'm trying to say is I guess that I don't know. I, to be honest, I'm uh, I'm. Like I'm, I'm not sure w- what it is that I, I am trying to say here either, because obviously, like if you end up directing your attention at everything that uh, that has hype, you're going to waste a lot of time. Yeah, but I think that here as well, probably that there is like I think that what's important is to have uh, maybe uh, and probably Taleb has better writings than this, but figuring out. Uh, proper alarm systems for when when you should no longer ignore things uh, right and and so that you can uh, ignore a lot of things but like uh, if this happened then I actually need to uh, need to uh, to pay attention to, to this this uh, hyper sensitive thing hmm. I think sometimes you just have to take a critical eye to these things but I also think with the comments around like did Sweden make the wrong call and things I think there are some other factors here as well. Like it may, I think Sweden actually took a more long-term sustainable approach right now uh, from Anders Tegnell. I know he was saying we made some mistakes in terms of protecting the nursing homes, but overall I think he was mostly satisfied with it. And I think we, a lot of other countries have just pressed pause and when uh, once for economic reasons, once they press play again, they're going to get all those deaths come again. Uh, and unfortunately it seems that some of the, things like hydroxychloroquine and all, all these other things, like some of the treatments have been very politicized, so then it kind of becomes difficult to use that. So I don't know. I think in a year's time or so, it'll look like you know Sweden made the right call and they were able to open up sooner and take less of a hit overall because they can actually open up and they can have tourism and stuff, whereas who knows with some of these other countries whether they will be able to open up that soon and... You know, there's all these other costs, know. right? And if, you, if you look at Sweden's neighbors, uh, they're all opened up uh, for everything except for Swedish people. Uh, and <laughs> their, their economies are, are spinning better than the Swedish ones and so on. And yeah. Like, in, in terms of like uh, quoting Anders Tegnell, uh, he's uh, uh, quite similar to Donald Trump uh, in the sense that if you want a topic uh, and an opinion, you'll find a quote where he says that. Uh, but he also says the other thing. Yeah, and so yeah, uh, uh, so it's like I don't know, and I I don't think that you and me discussing the uh, the the Corona strategy itself uh, is maybe the most interesting for like given that we're you know who who are, who are we to judge? I'm just A like, podcast. Yeah, I'm, I'm more interested on about like 
uh, I guess, uh, like the questions of like, uh, what sensitivity should you have to the things that have hype, <laughs> I guess, uh, is, uh, is, uh, is one interesting topic. And I guess just generally like, uh, the observation that, uh, that, uh, like the, the hype sensitive people that are often in venture capital, uh, seemed to, to, uh, pick up, uh, well, at least it was like different. Uh, in, in who picked up what in terms of this, uh, in terms of the situation, and um, yeah, I think for me, I've just, I mean, I've just stayed Bitcoin only the whole way. So for me, I, <laughs> I, right. Sometimes it's like shiny bright. What's the thing? Shiny bright thing syndrome or whatever that happens in IT, and people just kind of always sure. chasing after some shiny thing, and you know, but, I think it can but, be a trap that way. But but ask yourself this, uh, and uh, like. When you're when you first uh, acquired some bitcoins, if you did, uh, was that decision? Did that come from you being smart, or, or did that come from you being yodel? <laughs> um, right, uh, and uh, uh, because yeah. it's important. It's imp- it's it's important. Uh, you can uh, afterwards rationalize. Oh, I was so smart, and I did the analysis. Or maybe it was that uh, I'm not I, like I, I don't know about you, but for a lot of people, definitely that decision was YOLO, YOLO-esque, uh, and and so if people continue doing YOLO decisions, and it is also explains like I think it, it sufficiently explains why the broader industry looks the way that it does because it, it uses this dynamic <laughs> to to sell the shit coins to people, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, and, uh, and, uh, and so on. And like, I've, I've heard otherwise smart people saying that, look, I know that this might be a scam, but if, uh, uh, you know, if I invest in 10 of them and one of them ends up being the, the, the next big thing, then uh, and, and uh, nine are a scam and I'm still in, in, in the green, then well. I think for me, I came in with the vision of getting rid of central banks. Right. So now in, you know, the first time I ever bought Bitcoin, was I sure that Bitcoin was going to do it? No, but I think it's probably fair to say I thought it was like a very good risk adjusted bet. Right. So I thought, okay, for the amount that I'm putting to risk here, it's well worth it. And then over time, as I learned more, well, then I started, you know, uh, regularly accumulating. Um, And I guess that's my story on this stuff. Uh, Obviously, people have their own lessons and how they came into it right because some people came in from like 2017 got wrecked and then only learned yeah and there's people a lot of people in that camp so yeah but i think you're right that we have to kind of self-assess and think well you know why am i really here and what is the reason that i think you know bitcoin is going to win sure but, but but that's the motivation for why we stay here i'm talking about like the the motivation for uh, you know making important decisions Right. And, uh, or I guess making decisions at all. Like probably for most people, when they, they bought their first Bitcoins, probably wasn't an important decision. Like probably most people d- did not put life-changing amounts of money into Bitcoin uh, as their first contact yeah. with it either. Um, well, I think uh, it's kind of like a testing the waters, you know, like you start out, you dip your toe in the water, and if it works exactly. out well for you, well, then you, you know, keep going with it. Exactly. I mean, but, it's probably but, not but, that dis- distinct from running a business, right? Like you might start a certain product line exactly. and then it becomes popular. So then you put more into that. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah, I guess uh, that's kind of how I think of it. I think it's kind of like you start out with a small amount, you dip your toe in the water, and then you kind of go from there if it's working out well for you. So 
Right, but then, but then again, the, the, that's why the industry is what it is because a lot of people continue dipping toes into the water. Uh, <laughs> that's the thing. They're it? dipping their toes in the wrong water, though, Sergey. <laughs> right, but 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 but, uh, but but that that is the thing, right? And uh, and and here's where we get back to it: is that even if it's the wrong water ninety nine percent of the time, uh, if the hundredth time. Uh, is more than a hundred x outcome that maybe it is actually the right one. Um, maybe I don't know. Like uh, I think that, the, like I said, I think we're going in circles here. But but it's, I think that uh, having these heuristics for uh, for dismissing uh, things that are bad uh, is obviously a good idea. Uh, anything else would probably not not work. But I think that it's also important to I guess have heuristics. Uh, for uh, for uh, when to snap out of it, I guess, uh, uh, and when when to find out, uh, yeah, like what to pay attention to. I guess. Yeah, yeah. I think it's just a qualitative filter that you have to apply. But anyway, look, I think that's we'll probably leave it there. Uh, we've covered a lot of uh, interesting topics. I've <laughs> certainly enjoyed chatting today. Sergey, before we let you go, where can people find you, and where can they find Bit Refill? Good question. You can find BitRefill at uh, bitrefill.com. Uh, you can uh, buy stuff uh, with uh, uh, with your coins uh, using gift cards. Uh, actually, uh, in Australia as well now. Um, other than that, uh, you can find me on Twitter. Uh, I'm at uh, Zigamon. Uh, I'm sure there will be a link uh, next to this uh, podcast. Excellent. Well, thank you for joining me. Thank you as well. Get the show notes and subscribe at stefanlevera.com. Thanks, and I'll see you in the Citadels. Mm-hmm.